Hi, this is Alan Alexandrov, and I'm the director of the Global Symmetry Project. You can see all of the various research activities at uh, globalsymmetryproject.com. Today's podcast is uh, one of a series called Shaking the Global Order, um, and we're really pleased to be able to invite into the virtual studio our good colleague, uh, Stephen Slaughter. You will see at uh, the podcast series on the website two other um, ongoing series. One, the NOW series with current events and issues, and um, the Summit Dialogue series, which ties very uh, significantly into our um, uh, research series on strengthening uh, the G20. Stephen is an associate professor in international relations at Deakin University uh, in the state of Victoria in Australia. Stephen is a researcher who works a great deal within the fields of international relations, the global political economy, and international political theory with respect to the political impl implications of globalization and global governance. He also um, uh, does a fair bit of work on the G20. So let me welcome into the virtual studio our good colleague from Australia, Stephen Slaughter. So it's a great pleasure to have you back in the virtual studio, Stephen, with us. Um, welcome, welcome. Great, it's great to be here. Great. So, um, it was quite a surprise, or at least it seems so to the French anyway, uh, that um, AUKUS was uh, put together, that is Australia, the UK, and the US. Uh, but, uh, you know, the recent uh, collapse of the French submarine deal uh, with Australia as a result of the uh, agreement with the United States and Britain to displace the French submarines with uh, the nuclear submarines from uh, the U.S. and the U.K. in terms of technology was quite quite a um, uh, a big news event. Uh, Mr. Macron, uh, President Macron, positioned uh, the French as a bulwark against China um, and expanding his clout in the Indo-Pacific. But uh, this clearly, August really took took seemingly took the French by surprise. So maybe you can talk a little bit about AUKUS. What 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 is it as seen by the Australians, and uh, what what is the kind of the nature of the decision making in Australia about having something like uh, like AUKUS? Mm. Look, I think surprise is the and and the secrecy of it is the is the of, of the AUKUS deal is the thing that's really hits me the hardest in some ways because normally in Australian policymaking circles once some sort of decision-making pathway is created. Everybody, everybody knows about it. It's been discussed, right. but it was, was done very at very high levels of secrecy. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, it not just uh, took the French by surprise, it took the Australian public by surprise as well. But, I mean, I think it is very clearly uh, the, the mindset of, of the AUKUS deal is very much about the coalition government, our, our right-wing uh, government, mm -hmm. uh, wanting to improve the security situation of Australia by developing um, and engaging with nuclear-powered subs, but also strengthening ties with the United Kingdom and, and the US, who are the traditional kind of allies of mm -hmm. all of Australia. 
So, I mean, I think there's a there's a so, so the, the pathway is a pathway to security. Obviously, the big unspoken in the announcement, the big unspoken issue was you know, counterbalance to, to Chinese influence in the region mm-hmm. and security mm-hmm. issues, which of course has impacted on Australia because of our concern about China's power, but also the fact we've been hit by uh, trade sanctions, basically, and, and, and tariff barriers by by, um, by China. So that's at the forefront of our mind. And I think this is a way in which the government can show, hey, we're doing something about this. We are actually thinking forward. We're trying to develop technologies that will make us more secure in the decades uh, to come. I, I think there is, to be fair, in Australian circles anyway, there is a bit of scepticism about whether these subs will ever be created or, or built. Um, I think there is a sense the timelines are out so far uh, that the Scott Morrison um, coalition government is kind of known for having great announcements but not necessarily following through on things. So I think there's still some... Mm-hmm. Skepticism that this is actually going to 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 actually create submarines in the in the 2040s, but by the same token, I think even as announcement, it's a very important kind of sign about where the Australian government is at and the security establishment is at about how they've definitely made wanting to strengthen ties with the United States and, and the and the um, United Kingdom, whether or not submarines actually are manifest in in a decade and a half's time. Okay, so you know this seems to be a, a contrast because you know, certainly the Australian policy seemed to be hinting at a more kind of self-reliant defense posture uh, for the past several years, um, and now uh, it, you know it seems as Australia, as you pointed out, is betting rather big on the future of an alliance in quotes future of an alliance with the United States and with this new. Pact. How do how do most Australians think about you know kind of this n- new conception of the, of uh, of Australian foreign policy and security policy? Yeah, it's a really good question because I, I think you're right. I mean, we are betting big. Yeah, there, there's no two ways about it. I think even if you know, as I said, the submarines don't ever turn up, we're still communicating to the world. Hey, we are locking ourselves into the mm-hmm. UK, and the US. I mean, I think it has to be said there's been a bit of a change in Australian thinking, in public um, circles, you know, public debate around this. So I think 10 years ago, I think people saw it as a real choice between China and, and the US. Uh, even in policymaking circles, might have still been very clearly linked to the US alliance. Mm-hmm. In, in public, I remember talking to first-year students and just seeing younger people who've got no history of, of alliances or ANZUS or you know, First World War, say, well, they, no, they just see the world as ancient history, now. right? And they just see that China is our future. And, you know, so I, it wouldn't be, it wasn't 50 50, but it was definitely, you know, 30 or 40% of, a, of, of young students were saying, yeah, we've got to work closely with China. Mm-hmm. And um, that's disappeared in public debate. Like, I think it'd be very, I think the numbers now would be, would be pretty much, you know, 90 10 or something like that. It's just, it's that. Bigger shift, and it's mostly because of the trade sanctions. To be honest, the trade tariff tariff barriers that have been imposed by China. That's the thing that gets into the news. We feel a bit bullied, and Australians don't like being bullied. <laughs> We're very relaxed people, but like anybody, you just like it's it annoys it really irritates people. So that's that's the immediate issue that that, that mm-hmm. uh, we feel like we need some capacities. I think, um, even though, and I, I mean, it has to be said that I. One of the things I think is most important is the economic dimensions of all this. That I do think that, and uh, you know, we know that you know that 
our relationship with China economically is still very important despite all these things are happening. And we need some diplomacy that actually matches that and actually makes that work better. Because if countries that are more closer to China, like South Korea and Vietnam and Japan, if they can have productive uh, relationship, economic relationship with China, then we've got no excuse not to as well. So there is a balancing act here. We need to make the security arrangements work and we've got to think about the long-term capabilities. I think that yeah, there are some arguments around you know, nuclear-powered submarines in terms of the size of the territory that Australia has to defend. I mean, there are some sort of practical arguments, but that defence and military thinking doesn't make up for the fact that we still need diplomacy. You know, we actually need to have diplomatic efforts to actually work with China to the best right. we can. And notwithstanding the, the, the so-called, well, it is, it, trade coercion that seems to have emerged, mm-hmm. As a result, I take it that Australia, you know, sought and announced that it favored an impartial examination of the origins of the of COVID nineteen, and the reaction from China was quite strong, right, in yeah. raising tariffs on commodities that were um, important to Australia. Uh, yeah, an expert. I I still presume that Australia. I mean, in terms of its trade policy, it's still, you know, very much uh, uh, tied to China in terms of its exports and particularly on things like uh, minerals and most particularly on coal uh, still at this point. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, I mean the, about the uh, commission that was, they wanted to launch a commission into China, I, I think that many people in Australia, that caught many people in Australia at surprise at the time because it was like, why are we... Yes. Why are we pushing ourselves into this debate when, you know, we could do so through multilateral uh, you know, processes rather than us doing it? So that was a strange one. It was a strange one. It was a bit of a, you know, there's a bit of, uh, the current government is, is very much about um, signalling. It's about posturing in many ways, about trying to signal uh, its mm-hmm. position on things. And sometimes I think it it it, it, it does things the way it makes it communicates of its, of its, of its you know, psychological and mental approach to a problem without any kind of substance behind it. And I think this was an example of that where there was a kind of a, sure, there's important questions to be asked, but were we the right people to be asking it? And that, that question, yeah, it, it signaled to a certain voters and, and domestic constituents in Australia, hey, we're, we're, we're keeping an eye on China. But um, in a broader sense, I don't think it was a, a, a diplomatic diplomatically wise or necessary thing to do. And I think this, this this comes back to this deeper issue that we do need to, you know, our relationship with China uh, needs to be managed carefully. And we're, we're, we're not doing that at the moment. There's a bit of, a, from my mind, there's a lot of emotional thinking going on and mm-hmm. about uh, our relationship with China. Mm-hmm. I think in some sectors, there's this kind of fear of the authoritarian China. So we're, you know, we're making a much bigger deal about uh, the Chinese government, the uh, CTV's uh, treatment of minorities in China and human rights issues, its threats to Taiwan, all these sort of issues that have long been issues have become more prominent in our thinking. And I think some of it's driven by emotion rather than, than kind of cold-hearted logic. And that's a little bit about, you know, where Australian politics is at at the moment, that we are actually trying to, you know, the government particularly is seeing these things in, in somewhat... Yeah, I don't want to use the word Cold War thinking because that's what the Chinese said, but there is that kind of binary thinking creeping into our... The binary, yeah. yeah. Autocracy versus democracy. Yeah, that kind of thinking, which is not really... I mean, it's not not helpful in lots of ways. 
Not to say that we have to, you know, we do have to take a long-term gain. There is an importance of developing. Australia does have to keep on re revising its defence posture because of the, the timelines involved. We also need to think about the here and now and about trying to, to work the best we can with China. And I'm not sure this government has, has thought that through. Mm -hmm. the, the deeper thing for me about all this, and it's not, you know, is that the way in which the government thinks about the foreign policy making, mostly through a military kind of lens rather than a diplomatic lens. Really? We're willing to put a lot of money into military, but our diplomatic profile has been shrinking for some time, and, and mm. particularly at a time where we really need to be investing in our diplomatic efforts so that we've got stronger presence in Asia in particular. Mm -hmm. And also that, I mean, for me, the, the whole, the, the one of the, the, the worst uh, own goals of all this was our treatment of, treatment of France, given how important France is to the Asian, uh, the Pacific region because of its territories in New Caledonia. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which of course is a complicated issue in its own right, but I mean, it has a presence here in a way that, you know, that, you know, that, that, that has an enduring legacy, but we treated them very badly. Uh, that showed to me that we just don't have the diplomatic uh, now to we can't manage a relationship with France. <laughs> How are we going to manage our other relationships with other countries in the region? It's, it's crazy. So for me, the, the deeper concern about all this is 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 about balancing sure that we've got to invest in military capacities, but we also have to invest in diplomatic okay. capabilities. And I'm not sure this government has that as its priority, and that's that's a problem for us. Well, so let, let me, you know, there we are. We've got AUKUS, whatever it is, although it's not exactly clear to me what it is. Uh, and as you point out, you know, even if they do proceed with the submarines, it's decades before uh, these submarines are uh, really operational. Um, yeah. But l let's turn to the other uh, kind of uh, diplomatic uh, event, which was on September 24th, uh, President Biden hosted uh Prime Minister Morrison, and then also uh, Indian Prime Minister uh, Modi and Japanese Prime Minister at the time, uh, Suga, right? And this is this was at the White House for the first in-person, ever in-person, in fact, uh, Quad uh, Leaders Summit, Quad standing for Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, right? And uh, the event marked uh, really a milestone for the group because First of all, it started as an ad hoc kind of coordination um, for humanitarian assistance and disaster relief after the 2004 Indian Ocean uh, uh, tsunami. And then, in fact, the Quad literally disappeared during the Trump administration. There were no meetings, uh, either ministerial or otherwise, uh, that, that occurred. So um, what's up? I mean, you know... Uh, how does Australia now see um, this uh, particular uh, uh, gathering and what are the implications, both diplomatic and, and uh, security-wise, um, for uh, going forward? So, I mean, I think the Quad has a much lower profile in, in mm -hmm. Australian politics. I think if you went and surveyed Australians, I think you'd be lucky to get one in 100 who knew what the Quad was. <laughs> I'm um, sure that's true. <laughs> um, so I, I think it, it doesn't have the same same profile. I think I think it's also that because of the of the impermanence and like, that you've noted about it. I think that's another reason why it's not lodged uh, firmly in uh, the Australian psyche, whether it's public or in, in diplomatic in, in the in the policy making circles. I guess the biggest thing about the Quad is that 
obviously it's, it was it's it, there's a, there's a tends to be a I think that the the, the political parties the political party that's most supportive of quite tends to be our liberal um, which is our conservative party um, they tend to be more supportive of, of efforts to try to in this case um, create a framework of state like-minded supposedly like-minded states that can um, constrain China in some way and and that that kind of thinking I think resonates with the kind of the, the right wing I see policy making yeah. circles I think think that for example Kevin Rudd when he was um, Prime Minister didn't really support the coin at all. He was he was he was aiming for a much more kind of concert of Asia type of approach. So that that kind of multilateral versus bilateral thing is a, is a bit of a divide in Australian politics. It's not hard and fast. Obviously, the AL, our Labor Party. Now I, I I interject only because I was in Australia at the time. But of course, Rudd promoted this um, Asia Pacific APC, if you remember, uh, Asia Pacific Community which caused a huge uproar um, because it had a security dimension to it, but caused a huge uproar among uh, a number of ASEAN countries, not least of which was Singapore. Uh, But I I assumed others as well. So, so there clearly is a divide here in Australia. I mean, there is a sense, I mean, Australia is long been seen as a joiner, that we love joining diplomatic forums. We love G20. We love to join anything we're in. (laughs) Get, get a, a meeting to, to, to be an attendant to, to the G7. We love to come. You know. So Australia's got this, that's, that mentality, but there is a bit of a divide between the kind of left and the right in Australia about what type of things you, you want to emphasize. And I think in, um, in, in, in the right wing kind of the Liberal Party mould, there is a sense of how we can use these instruments to address threats. I think Rad was quite, I mean, my view is he's actually quite innocent in some ways. He kind of was trying to do something, but, but it's, it's obviously that it, it just doesn't translate into the region, to Australia, to sort of to be seen to be you know, kind of you know, having that kind of colonial white mindset of like, hang on, we've got a solution for all you people. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't go down too well. But I think that, I mean, to come back to, to, to the quad, I mean, the, the, yeah. the quad is, 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 has got a certain kind of re- uh, there is a, a level of realism about it in the sense of, of um, hey, there's a threat. We are all democracies. You know, this threat is, is is potential, but there's no deeper substance to it because of of, of diverse interests amongst four states, oh. geographically different states, and of course, once we layer the economic dimension on all this, the quad becomes you know, kind of a bit silly because. China's you know, it's so important to 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 all the countries involved. So we've got this ridiculous situation where we're developing military capacities to deal with a threat to, to securitize uh, our economic relationship with that same country, and it's a it's a it's a long-standing tension in Australian policy making that we are uh, China's our biggest threat but our biggest opportunity, and, and that dimension, mm-hmm. despite this posturing, whether it's Quad or AUKUS or whatever, doesn't go away. We've still got that economic dimension there. Uh, yeah, I, and to be fair, <clears throat> of course, the Australian government uh, took the lead on establishing uh, APEC, mm. which clearly does have a, an economic, a geoeconomic kind of, uh, de- not geo, but uh, economic dimension to it. Um, and I, I don't, you know, I don't see the Australian government having particularly formative focus on APEC and in, although it's fair to say that the Americans joined back in on the meetings this year of APEC under the Biden administration which was really the first time in a number of years right that uh, there was participation 
from from the U.S. administration. So, you know, both kind of globes are there, but it's not, not clear to me, and maybe you can help me, you know, kind of maybe there is no direction at this point. I mean, that there's kind of security aspects and economic aspects and China, but not China and all the rest. I think, you know, I, I think long ago, um, whether it's regional governance or global governance, we've reached the point where we've got too much stuff happening. Um, you know, okay. the, the, the danger is not anarchy in the international system. It's too much complexity and too much overlapping forms of, of, of governance. And, I think, you know, the, the case we're pointing to here, and of course, we've, we've still got uh, the more recent um, economic partnerships that are creating and being created in the region um, that just show how much we're trying to find that magical relationship where we can, can open up trade as much as possible. And, you know, I think APEC was in some ways an early sign of that um, that's been taken, of course, by the, the TPP and its um, subsequent um, iteration, right? Yeah, there, 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 there. I mean, there is there is a sense of which that kind of the economic dimensions of it for me uh, are the one where we've got to spend much more, invest a lot more energy in. Uh, they're, they're ones that are really important to Australia's future, particularly rebuilding back from COVID. It's going to be really important to have that kind of economic relationships where we're able to create really efficient economic linkages between the countries. Um, okay. I mean, I do think there is also a need to have really strong kind of uh, social interactions, social issues like dealing with health issues particularly. That's something that I think globally and, and regionally we need to really work on um, for, for, for our economic well-being as much as anything else. Um, yeah. As well. Do you think the Australian government is concerned about, I mean, as kind of a last piece of this and, uh, to, to kind of clean up what is obviously complicated. Um, uh, is there concern on the part of the Australian government that, that the United States has not um, in, uh, indicated uh, a willingness to join any of the major regional trade arrangements, which clearly have you know, implications for the Asia Pacific in terms of supply chains and so forth. So whether it's the CPTPP or yeah. whether it's RCEP, is there concern yeah. on the part of Australia that the United States, you know, for basically domestic political reasons, isn't at the moment going there? Yeah, look, I, I think I think domestically there's 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 obviously Biden is is a bit caught um, caught on this issue. He's caught between the the domestic unpopularity of of free trade agreements versus the need to to engage with um, with Asia, but also obviously obviously the world. I mean, I think the CPTPP and the RCEP, I get these acronyms wrong, uh, are really are both really important. I think the RCEP, the, the economic partnership, yeah. that's got really really important for Australia to engage with China and to hopefully provide a mechanism by which we can sort of soften some of these these tariff. Uh, barriers that have been thrown down in recent years to actually get away from that kind of economic coercion, the trade mm -hmm. coercion you were speaking mm -hmm. of before. So I, I think personally, I think that's really important. I think Australia has a bit of a bit of a kind of a a, a um, divided view, a kind of a can segment a bit. I mean, it, it sort of can rely upon good relationship, economic relationships with uh, America. I think they would have liked America to obviously be a part of the TPP agreement because uh, that would have. That would have really been been nice and tight. It would have linked the countries really well. 
but I mean, I think they they, they can they can actually play play the play both Asia and also America separately. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still think the ultimate game is to, to to create more unified trade agreements. I think Australia just likes that from a from a uh, coherence point of view and from a the sense that we can um, create one system that kind of works well and and can uh, link link economies in a productive way. But I think also that you know diplomatic policy, economic, diplomatic uh, economic relations at the moment are about making agreements that work. And if they're informal or informal, it doesn't really matter. It's just a matter of can we actually keep pushing tariffs down in a very complicated. Uh, context and I think that informal agreements in some ways are easier because it's of less domestic um, right. opposition to ratifying uh, treaties where countries can where domestic interests can say oh we're losing sovereignty because we're giving up uh, trade uh, uh, trade uh, rules on something um, but so I, I actually think those agreements are really important for the future of of of, of, of Asia as a whole uh, and. The economic dimensions do, uh, as we mentioned before about Kevin Wright and the whole, you know, kind of uh, Asian um, kind sort of, of community kind of thing, right? Yeah, I mean, that kind of stuff is, if, if, if you can stay away from the security dimensions and, and focus on the economic relations, I think, you know, you've got, a, you've got a solid foundation to maybe later on the track to sort of deepen connections on other issues. But I think economics is the thing that translates the best in, in the Asian in Asia. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you, Stephen, for taking the time to join with us in the virtual studio to talk about uh, Australian foreign policy in the scope of AUKUS and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, the Quad, et cetera, et cetera. So thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks, Alan. It's great to meet you.